Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Metabolic Classroom, a nutrition and lifestyle podcast focused on the truth behind why we get sick and fat. What you're about to hear was taken from a live broadcast streamed on InsulinIQ.com. The Metabolic Classroom is brought to you by InsulinIQ and by Health Code Meal Replacement Shakes. Episode 31, Caffeine and Your Metabolism. For many of our clients on their low-carb journey, they rely on caffeine-containing beverages for a quick pick-me-up or as a substitute for food. But how does it affect metabolism? Let's discuss what you need to know. There's no doubt this is a stimulating topic uh, when it comes to caffeine. <laughs> well now, done. In no fact, pun. <laughs> yeah, no, that was deliberate. So in this case, it's, uh, there, there is a, there's some misunderstandings. There's some myths around caffeine. And note, everyone, I'm talking about caffeine. I'll talk about coffee at the end. These two are not synonymous, although we often think of them as synonymous. We're talking about caffeine, the actual addictive drug, for lack of a better description, um, that is found in caffeine and in coffee and many other, of course, drinks and substances to varying degrees. So caffeine is um, a, a chemical that the body can become somewhat dependent on, in other words, develop a, a, an addiction. Um, and, you know, hopefully one that doesn't ruin a life. I don't mean to speak of it in such illicit terms. Um, as to make someone afraid of it, but it's a chemical that the body can become dependent on. It's a very mild stimulant. People um, over, they exaggerate the, the central nervous system stimulation. Caffeine doesn't really um, give the buzz that many people claim, but it does push off fatigue by blocking what's called adenosine, adenosine receptors in the brain. It's these, when these adenosine receptors get occupied by a different molecule that the body, the brain starts to want to, to want to have us fall asleep. Caffeine basically blocks that from happening. And so it's a good way to push off tiredness and fatigue, or it's a bad way to stay up too late if you drank something with caffeine too late into the day. But it is a mild stimulant. 
um, and and it is more of a, a known deterrence to to fatigue. Now, uh, which someone could say is good or bad. <clears throat> I would say it's good or bad depending on when you're putting caffeine in your body. Caffeine uh, also, unfortunately, be, uh, through similar mechanisms, can exacerbate anxiety because it can alter the chemistry in the brain. People with people that are prone to anxiety disorders will find that the caffeine will make their anxiety worse. So that's, that's a negative, and it's certainly one to, be, one to be mindful of. Now, when it comes to the metabolic consequences, which is me you know, really playing in my sandbox, the, the consequences are almost totally a result of the hormones that are changed. And we're not talking about the brain anymore and brain chemistry. We're now talking about systemic blood and movement of, of uh, chemicals throughout the rest of the body, so hormones. And the two main hormones that are affected by caffeine happen to be the prototypical stress hormones. And these are epinephrine and cortisol. And to understand what caffeine does to metabolic function in a human, we have to look at it through the lens of these two stress hormones, the prototypical stress hormones, epinephrine, also called adrenaline, and cortisol. Now, the epinephrine is the main explanation for why caffeine can increase and does increase metabolic rate. So when someone's ingested caffeine, metabolic rate will climb a little higher. It's nothing massive, and, and I don't think it should be used as some tool to try to uh, hack or game the calories in, calories out idea. It's a modest increase in energy expenditure or metabolic rate, which is reflected in a mild increase in body temperature. Skin and body temperature tends to go up a little bit, and all of this, again, is a reflective of the of the or, or, or a consequence of the actions of epinephrine, including some of the um, not only not independent of the increased body heat, but also the, the potential for sweaty palms, which plays into epinephrine actually having this a mild um, fight or flight response, activating the sympathetic nervous system. Not, not that it happens to some pathological degree, but it's happening to a mild degree. And so those are consequences from epinephrine that, that you could say are good. That, that we would say generally, well, an increased metabolic rate, that's a good thing. And I wouldn't disagree with that. Another consequence of the epinephrine is an increase in lipolysis. And this is where athletes like to use caffeine. It's because caffeine, by nature of its effects on epinephrine, will increase the rate at which fat is being mobilized. We've had it stored in our fat cells and in our liver, and I'll come back to liver later. And this is basically pushing this fat from storage into the blood to be used by the muscle. So caffeine can enhance the fat burning that's happening in an athlete or anyone. And so an athlete who has a long endurance event, naturally they want to be relying on their fat stores more than their glucose stores because we have so much energy from fat. And so the, cat, the, the athlete will try to promote that fat burning as a fuel by using the epinephrine inducing effects of caffeine. So taking caffeine or caffeine pills or caffeine shots. So those are all good things mediated by epinephrine. Now there's the other stress hormone that I mentioned, and that is cortisol. Nothing really good happens from cortisol, metabolically speaking. And, and the two of these stress hormones meet when it comes to insulin sensitivity, because both epinephrine and cortisol are known insulin antagonists. These are hormones that will drive insulin resistance in the body and indeed 
in the few hours following caffeine ingestion, insulin sensitivity will drop by about 15%. Now that's not massive and it is acute. And of course it's going to be dose dependent. I almost hate to say this, but the more someone is used to caffeine, the less effect it has. There's that phenomenon of diminishing returns. And, and I hate to say that because I don't want to encourage people to start overdoing it with the caffeine. But that is a negative aspect where despite the, the apparent benefit of an increased metabolic rate, there is the drawback, which is a result of epinephrine. There's the drawback of those two stress hormones, which is the loss of some degree of insulin sensitivity. Now, again, I'm not claiming that this is going to be something overtly harmful. Now, one other note about the cortisol, and this is an interesting nuance that is unconfirmed. So this is speculation, um, but I know it's being actively studied because I know some of the scientists that are actively studying this. Uh, a lot of these pre-workout drinks and, and supplements these days have caffeine in them because of the apparent um, stimulus that they would give the athlete to help the athlete work out better and harder. What's interesting about that, uh, that fact or that use of caffeine as a pre-workout supplement is, is what it does to cortisol, where caffeine does in fact increase cortisol. And the studies that are going on now is wondering to what degree might that modest cortisol bump actually prevent muscle growth because cortisol doesn't facilitate muscle growth. It directly antagonizes muscle growth. Cortisol wants to break the muscle down rather than have it build up. So ironically, while caffeine has worked its way into so many popular pre-workouts, it might actually be diminishing the, 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 adapt, the adaptation to that workout. You might be mitigating some of the muscle growth or anabolic effects of the workout. Now, all of this has been a discussion brief in the context of caffeine. Caffeine is not the same as coffee. When it comes to coffee, while it is certainly a key source of caffeine, and indeed for most people, the primary source of caffeine, there are other chemicals that come in coffee that fall in that same family of methylxanthines, and that includes other ones like theobromine and theophylline. So these are not caffeine, but they're kind of like caffeine, and they kind of act like caffeine. And this is why there are some headlines very recently about any type of coffee can help the liver. And this is, and they, they note that it's either traditional coffee, like caffeinated coffee, or the uh, non-caffeinated versions or the decaffeinated versions of coffee, where the caffeine has been explicitly removed, but the other methylxanthines are still there, like theobromine and theophylline. So these are chemicals, all of which act in similar degrees, uh, albeit perhaps a little less than caffeine, to mobilize energy. They want fat to be moved in the body to be used. This can happen at the liver. So the key uh, or the most common liver problem is fatty liver disease. Well, if you can get the liver to break down its stored fat, which these methylxanthines will do to, to a small degree, well, then you're helping clear the liver out. That's going to be beneficial for the liver. Anytime you can get the liver to be sharing things rather than storing them, generally, that's going to be a good thing. And these non-caffeine chemicals that you would find in decaffeinated coffee would also do it. Now, importantly, <clears throat> if that study had gone maybe a little further and looked at other drink sources of methylxanthines like cocoa, or uh, I don't, I don't, I hate to mention specific brands, but there, I know in Utah here, there's become a famous um, drink called Creo Brew, which is basically a way of brewing cocoa beans rather than coffee beans 
Well, you also get these methylxanthines at various levels. So this is a study that I'm absolutely certain, mind you, that's a correlational study. I should have mentioned that all these headlines are coming from a correlational study, which I have very little regard for as a scientist. But nevertheless, I'm totally certain if they had included some of these other drink sources of methylxanthines, they would have found you know, perhaps similar results if the phenomenon is real. Now, one note of caution though, I mentioned these methylxanthines, theobromine and theophylline, it might encourage people to want to take them. Well, there more and more, there are powdered versions of certain stimulant drinks like yerba mate. This is something that's been a learning experience for me. I strongly encourage people to be very, very careful with powdered versions of any of these. Maybe the same would apply to instant coffee. The thing about brewed drinks like coffee or, or brewing cocoa beans is that you aren't, uh, you're getting, a, 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 I guess, a, I'm not sure how to describe it, but a brewed version of it. I hate to use the same word to describe the word, but you're soaking um, the bean and then you're getting some of the chemicals from it. When you are getting like a, a dehydrated pulverized version of it, like the powdered um, bean or plant in all of its, with all of its component parts, you're getting, I would say, an unhealthy balance that when you're taking um, these, this refined version of it, you might be getting too much. And, by, and when I say too much, and, and this is a little personal um, because of what I experience, uh, it, it's notable that these methylxanthines are purines. And when purines have to be metabolized in the body, they increase the production of uric acid. And uric acid accumulation, of course, causes gout. Now, my personal note of caution here is that I was noticing gout symptoms in my healthy, strong, capable body. Um, and, and I scrutinized everything I was putting in my body. Now, caffeine is not uh, inherently a problem. And, and I wouldn't say any of these methylxanthines are. But uh, uh, for example, yerba mate, which is something that I was taking in a powdered form every day and throughout the day, will have thousands of times higher levels of purines than any other food substance, I think it may be in existence, but certainly any that you would commonly take, including wheat and fructose, other common causes to increase uric acid. So while there are benefits to these methylxanthines, liver health, metabolic rate benefits, there is a downside. And I would say the downside comes from you taking too much and you're taking it in the wrong form. So avoid powdered versions of these that would come in high concentrations, rather focus on the brewed version of these kinds of things like coffee or brewed cocoa beans if you want to get them. Now, thankfully, none of these are essential. And this was all just a tangent as I wrap this back up, um, a, a tangent from the main topic, which was caffeine. So when you want to think about the benefits of caffeine, there are central nervous system effects, whether they're good or bad. The good may come from delaying fatigue. The bad may come from anxiety. Then there are good and bad metabolic consequences of an increased metabolic rate balanced with a, an acute um, insulin resistance state. And then all of these to varying effects, you know, they're, they're caused by these stress hormones. Um, and then we have the methylxanthines themselves, which will have non-hormone effects um, similar to caffeine, um, just directly mobilizing um, energy, independent of any other hormones. Great. That's awesome. Yeah, good, good uh, foundation for a discussion here. Um, 
uh, Carly and Rich, you spend a lot of time with our coached clients. What are some of the specific questions that we get from our coached clients about caffeine? That's a great question, Jack, because a lot of our clients, uh, it's interesting because a lot of the clients in Utah don't drink coffee. And so we don't have a, I don't have a ton of coffee drinkers here. Um, but the ones that do, you know, their questions are, is it helpful? It's like Ben said, you know, is, is this going to hurt me? And, and we know about, uh, you know, I mean, for me, coffee is a great way to get fat in the morning. And Ben, does that have an offset? Does, does that affect the effectiveness or, or the impact of caffeine if you're putting, you know, like uh, butter in it or coconut oil mm. or, or cream or something like that? Like it would yeah. the instant response to sugar. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, so, so the fact that coffee... And the caffeine does create an, an acute insulin resistance. I would say that's a time to be very careful with what you're adding to it. Um, I would say don't make it worse by adding um, sugar. And then the fact that, you know, a, a gram or so of, of butter or MCT, I don't think that's going to be consequential. I would rather put a gram of butter in there than a gram of sugar personally, because I don't want to amplify. Um, I don't want to exacerbate the insulin resistance by, by, you know, demanding a bet, an insulin response uh, from the sugar that I'm adding to it. Now, of course, unfortunately, that's how sugar, that's what coffee has become. Coffee has become almost just a big milkshake with some coffee as the base. Now, Rich, to you, one other point you made, uh, while many um, in, you know, the Mountain West and Utah in particular don't drink coffee, they certainly drink caffeine. Yes. Oh, yeah. Um, you diet know, where, Coke, like you can't where, Yeah, Diet Coke is, is a particular, and, and I, I get it. I love Diet Dr. Pepper, so I don't mean to um, say this is something people shouldn't engage in, but it is, uh, there, there's, caffeine is addictive, and while so many people eschew caffeine or coffee because of its uh, apparent addictive tendencies, don't just trade that addiction for another addiction, then you're, I would say, defeating the purpose of, you know, avoiding the addictive tendencies of coffee in the first place. So I, everyone needs to scrutinize their behavior in that regard. Um, now, the, the interesting thing, and I can't say whether it's good or bad, about caffeinated sodas or non-coffee -ca caffeinated drinks is that you aren't getting the other chemicals that I mentioned. Now, I, I'm not saying that's good or bad, but it is a unique thing where in a caffeinated soda, it is just the caffeine of these chemicals that you're getting, whereas in coffee or brewed cocoa, to a lesser degree, you're getting other kind of caffeine-like molecules. And again, I'm not stating that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it is a unique thing. So Ben, I mean, if you're on a keto, if you're on a ketogenic diet of any kind over the last five, six years, I mean, bulletproof coffee is a mainstay. Um, so are we saying coffee is good or is coffee not good? I'm not saying either. I, and I hate to, I hate to not answer that. This makes it sound like I'm being some mealy mouth politician. Uh, I think coffee can be a perfectly healthy part of, of any diet. Uh, in a ketogenic diet, the fact that we're adding a, a, a gram or a couple grams of fat, I don't like generally adding fat to things um, because I think that that can be the kiss of death in a ketogenic diet where um, the person is just putting a lot of energy in the body and the energy has to be accounted for. But at the levels that, from what I've seen, you know, when you're putting a, a tablespoon of MCT oil or whatever in your coffee, uh, first of all, MCT also increases metabolic rate. Um, 
Uh, and uh, so, you know, that might offset the, the calories coming in from it. But I, I, have, I defend that to a little degree, which is I have found that when I add a little bit of cream or, or butter to a drink, if I'm having a warm drink in the morning, there's no question I am much more satisfied for longer than I would be otherwise. And I think that's a, that's a real benefit, not to mention the ketogenic benefits perhaps of the MCT oil itself or the coconut oil. That's beside the point. But I, I, as much as I'm lukewarm on adding fat to things for the sake of adding fat, there is something to be said for helping you um, stab off your hunger longer. And if it took just a little, you know, a few grams or a few calories of fat to do it, that to me is actually a, a good trade-off. Yeah. And Ben, I hate to keep uh, asking questions, but how about, and, and Carly, I'm sure will want to chime in, when I'll talk to clients about intermittent fasting, they'll ask me, can I have a cup of coffee in the morning with some MCT oil and not have it count against my fast? Yeah. Yeah. So you guys have heard me say this before, um, but yeah, I, I think there are two ways to look at a fast and I defend this vigorously. So uh, it, it, I define a fast, and that's why I can have two forms of it, by a low insulin state. And I'm not alone in doing this. There are famous metabolic scientists over the years who've looked at insulin, and they consider insulin the hormone of the fed state. And so if insulin is low, that is, by their definition and mine, the fasted state. And you can lower your insulin by truly fasting and not consuming any calories. That is a true fast that I refer to as a caloric fast, when you are not consuming any calories. But I balance that with what I, what I call a nutritional fast. This is when you are taking in calories, but they're not having any effect on your insulin. And pure fat does that. Now, I know there's a little bit of debate in this area, but unless your fat is anywhere below several hundred calories of consumption, you will not get an insulin response. I'm exceptionally confident in stating that. There's no insulin response to a little bit of fat. Now, if it gets too high, like 400 calories worth, you might get a response, but even then it's exceptionally modest. So in general, I would say fat is not going to change your insulin. And thus, in a way, it mimics that fasted state despite you consuming calories. So when someone asks me, is coffee going to break my fast? Uh, if it's pure coffee, no, not at all, zero. It, that, would fit, that would fit every definition of a fast where you're still drinking water because you're not getting any calorie from that and there's no insulin release from that coffee. And when you add cream to it, for example, or ghee or MCT oil, then I say, well, that's a nutritional fast. And so it won't break the nutritional fast by my definition, but it would strictly speaking, break the caloric fast. And so whether that's good or bad depends on the person's outcomes. Um, anytime you put energy in the body, it does um, basically, uh, wiggle out using your own energy. So those few calories you're taking from the fat does mean it's a few calories of your own fat that you won't use for a moment. And Ben, so it, it, because caffeine impacts cortisol, does that in turn have an impact on insulin resistance then and, and potentially insulin without any calories? Yeah. 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 So insulin itself doesn't change in response to caffeine, but if you couple that caffeine with a glucose load, as so many people do nowadays, of course, because most coffees are just glorified milkshakes, it, it, I'm speculating as I've not seen data on this, but because the caffeine does induce a mild insulin resistance, I'm exceptionally certain it would amplify the insulin response to that glucose or sugar load. Yeah. So don't take your coffee or, or your, or your caffeine with sugar. So, 
if you're going to get a Coke, really get a Diet Coke. Um, if you're going to get a coffee, leave out the sugar. Either put in a non-caloric sweetener, put in stevia or something like that. Um, but of course, we put them together. Food manufacturers put them together. You look at these horrific energy drinks that are just loaded with caffeine and loaded with sugar. And I see these, for lack of a better word, moron moronic young people and some moronic older people taking these ridiculous drinks. And it, I, I can just imagine the metabolic havoc that's going on in their bodies. Yeah. So that's a, a little insulting, other... but I defend it. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> uh, the other way you could say it is uneducated. Yeah. <laughs> but like, moronic like, works too. I like Ben's better. <laughs> so um, one of the things I feel like I'm often dealing with is trying to get people to hydrate well. Um, and we say, you know, half of your body weight typically in ounces is kind of what we're trying to aim people towards. Um, and in the past, I have said when you drink drinks like coffee, which tends to have more of a diuretic effect, you really shouldn't count that towards your water consumption. But I would, I would disagree with, you know, counting diet soda. I don't know. How do you feel about that? Like, with the diuretic um, effect of coffee. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know the threshold of, of caffeine acting as a diuretic, um, but maybe I'm overly simplistic or, or too pragmatic, but I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't count it against it because there's no question the net effect of drinking a caffeinated liquid would still be liquid. Um, even if there is a very mild diuretic effect, it would not be comp it would not equal what went in just went out. That would that would definitely not be the case. So if there is a diuretic effect at normal consumptions um, of of caffeine through coffee or soda, it would be modest. And and I I personally would still say that's water in, even if the person may have a slightly enhanced diuretic effect. It's not going to be. I would think it's not significant at those levels. Okay, good. That's good to hear. Yeah, that is good to hear. We get that question quite a bit. Yeah. Um, my other question was when a lot of people will say, well, I drink coffee in the morning because it suppresses my appetite. So what do you have to say about that? How yeah. does coffee suppress appetite? Yeah, so it, uh, it could be an energy available phenomenon. I'd mentioned when I was on that podcast with Ted Naiman and Brian Sanders on the Peak Human podcast, I... I cited a study by David Ludwig's lab um, looking at energy availability in the wake of an insulin spiking meal or not insulin spiking meal. And when insulin goes up, energy available, availability goes down in the blood, and that might be what's driving hunger. Um, in the case of caffeine or coffee, in this case, there probably is uh, an insulin effect. And I bet it's through this inverse mechanism that I just mentioned, which is energy is more available because caffeine is inducing lipolysis, you are flushing the system with energy. And there's that mild glucose uh, insulin resistance effect, which might result in a slight bump in the glucose levels. So the brain is then sort of flush with energy. It's sensing this ample or abundant energy in the body and energy would then to, at, at the brain would signal the brain to, to diminish hunger and rather promote satiety. So I could see a satiety effect and it would be because of the effect on energy rather than any other specific hormones. Hmm. Uh, warm drinks in general seem to do that to myself. I, I 
feel like my appetite is suppressed just when I drink something warm. Do you think that's any different than drinking something cold or is that just psychological with me? <laughs> well, I, I don't know. Oh, I'm not sure. It's psychological. A... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, but Carly, you're not just drinking warm water, right? Like no, it's, like even be something but even herbal tea, warm herbal yeah. tea or chicken broth that, you know, is deplete of, you know, yeah. all the proteins yeah. and fats you know, and stuff. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I would I would almost just have to do a comparison and say, okay, Carly, on this day, you're drinking a warm tea on this day, you're drinking it cold. You know what I mean? Like there might just yeah. be yeah. something in the habit in the, in yeah. the habit or the, the presence of wonder. mind where it's not the warmth of the drink, but it's just the, it's the, all the other variables um, that are playing into it. So I don't know of anything unique about it being warm. I would just, we'd have to do a comparison. We'd have to say, okay, today's a cold drink day. You know, today's a warm drink day where it's the exact same tea you know, for example, in, in just different temperature water. Yeah. Because water or hydrating in general can, would you say that can suppress appetite because of your hunger hormones yep. in your stomach? Yep. Yep. So you've simply filled space and anytime there are two, two aspects of hunger, which is the physical volume of filling your intestines with something. And then there's the energy aspect um, which ultimately wins. Energy ultimately drives hunger to a degree that any volume of stuff in your intestines can never overcome. But nevertheless, there's those two aspects, whereas there's something in your guts, that's the acute phase of hunger. And then the longer phases, is, is, the, is the body, is there energy available to the brain? Okay, ben, so that would a, fill, that would check that first phase. Yeah. I've got a couple of questions, Ben. Uh, one has to do with ADHD. Um, mm -hmm. I've, I've got it badly. <laughs> I know it's such a surprise to everybody. Squirrel. <laughs> but when I Squirrel. drink coffee at night, it seems to put me to bed. It puts me to sleep. Caffeine? Yeah. You know anything about yeah. that or why that would be the case? You know what, though? Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, but I have a work colleague who swears by drinking a Diet Coke every night and it helps him sleep like a baby. Yeah. I tend to be a very anxious person in general. Uh, it's something I struggle with, my racing, pounding heart every night. And so I am very studious about not drinking any caffeine in the afternoon, right. let alone evening. I'm not sure, Rich, there is like, and I've heard reports of people with ADHD responding very well to caffeine, where it's paradoxically a suppressive effect on attention rather than being a bit of an anxiety inducing, um, fatigue right. delaying um, drug. It actually works the opposite way. I, I, I've only heard of this, um, but I know of no evidence to support okay. it one way or the other. Oh, Could it have? Excuse, is it just an excuse I want to drink a Diet Coke at night? <laughs> there you yeah, go. Yeah, no, but the fact is, I, I've noticed, I've felt it where I'll be laying in bed thinking, what on earth is up with me? I am, I cannot sleep and my heart is pounding. And it is invariably, well, there could be other causes, but every time if I have a Diet Dr. Pepper in the evening, I will not sleep well. And I'm certain it's because of my brain and my naturally kind of higher anxiety. And, and, and Rich, you might, while you might have an attention kind of hyperactive tendency, you probably, you might not just be as anxious a person. And that might be the difference because there are genetic origins of these anxiety and, but certainly anxiety. Um, I don't want to say disorder, but anxiety tendencies um, that, 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 so someone will be genetically prone to this or not. I'm exactly the same way you are, Ben. If I if I have caffeine even in the afternoon, I, I do not sleep. I'm just I'm wide awake in the in the night. It's terrible, and it's not fun because no, yeah, your terrible. heart is pounding and you're just 
looking at the ceiling, wondering what's going on. And I'll be trying to convince myself, like I'll almost have these affirmations, Ben, everything's fine. There's nothing to be anxious about. Calm the hell down. Yeah. (laughs) Could this have something to do with DNA? I know when I got my DNA tested a few years ago, one of the markers they tell you is, do you metabolize caffeine quickly? And I was a quick metabolizer. So I don't, I'm not affected at night by caffeine. I could sleep like a baby, even if I drank caffeine five minutes before I went to bed. Yeah, you, uh, uh, undoubtedly, there are differences in how you metabolize the chemical to clear it from your blood. And then there are true genetic differences in people having a tendency towards anxiety. And, and those would be people who naturally don't sleep as well. So yes, there would be a genetic um, dis, uh, foundation for definitely these things. Hey, Jack, I know, I know we have clients that want to have questions. I have one more question for you, Ben, it's personal. So when I'm doing like a, a really long endurance race, and I'm strictly ketogenic and strictly, you know, fat adapted, and like I'll do a hundred mile run or, or a hundred mile ride. And then halfway through, I'll drink a, a sugared Coke and mm-hmm. maybe another one, you know, a couple hours later. And it just, it's just like a turbo freaking boost. And it just drives me to the finish line. Is that because of the glucose coming in or is that from the caffeine really metabolizing? Well, my it's fat? both. No, okay. it'd be both. No question. Those would play together. And that's why so many of these supplements have both together. Um, because there is, especially to a ketogenic athlete and especially to you who would be a little more caffeine naive because you're not a coffee drinker, um, the caffeine would have itself. So that's one thing I would tell people if you're trying to leverage the, the ergogenic benefits of caffeine for a workout or an event, try to wean yourself off of it in a period in, in, in the months preceding it, not completely, but, you know, only use it for your training, for example, and even have times where you're not training with it. So that when you get it, you really have the strong response because like every drug, there's diminishing returns. Just like too much insulin causes insulin resistance, incessant caffeine consumption causes caffeine resistance. And so for the athlete, again, who wants to leverage the ergogenic boost of the caffeine, you got to wean yourself off of it so that when you do take it, boy, it, it, it's like a punch. Now, the same would go with glucose, Rich, where you're such a fat adapted athlete that when you have your muscles, which are a little um, hypoxic or a little oxygen deficient for intensity workouts, then the glucose is the fuel that is burned in low oxygen environments. There's this myth that the working muscle prefers glucose because it can give ATP or can give energy faster than fat. That's not true. Fat can give, if, if anything, catabolizing fat can give faster ATP than, than, than glucose burning can. It's just that when blood and oxygen become a little limited, which is a problem when you're exercising hard, you're having a hard time keeping cells oxygenated, you have to have ample oxygen to burn fat. Glucose can be fermented. It doesn't need oxygen to be burned. And that is why the muscle that is working out so hard will rely more on glucose, not because fat can't provide energy quickly. It absolutely can. It's just fat has to be burned in a high oxygen environment. And if oxygen is a little limited in the working muscle, then glucose is the only option. Gotcha. Hmm. Awesome. So I have one more quick question too. <laughs> sure. um, so I have a 15-year-old who started getting migraines this year, debilitating migraines all of a sudden. And one of the um, things the doctor said was make sure he has no caffeine. Hmm. So what's yeah. that connection? Yeah. Caffeine results in reduced blood flow to the brain. That was a uh, phenomenon I didn't mention at all. 
but caffeine will reduce acutely cerebral blood flow. And I, I know there are different forms of migraines, but I believe some are a result of vascular changes and in, in the reduction in blood flow to the brain. And so the caffeine could just exacerbate that if that is the cause of the migraine and there are different types. Um, but that would be why I, I would think, I would think it would be whether the person knows it or not, um, it, it, they would intuitively start reducing caffeine just because the caffeine will potentially exacerbate that, that constriction of blood vessels in the brain to slightly reduce brain blood flow. So that would explain why some people can do fine on caffeine and not have it trigger migraines, but others might yep. have that. Yeah, I, that's problem. right. Yeah. And I would say it's probably just because of what their migraine origin actually is, because there are yeah. different types. Yeah, there are some people oh. that, that, use my, that use caffeine to help, help with migraines. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's yes. why I was confused. Yeah. So. You know, what's interesting, we've talked about so many factors and uh, including DNA. I thought that was an interesting comment you had, Carly, about um, a DNA marker that, that you found when you had that test done. And, and the reason I bring that up is this morning when we started publicizing the broadcast today on social media, it was funny. A lot of people, I think, were expecting us or you, Ben, excuse me, to have a very definite opinion like yay or nay against caffeine ah. or for caffeine because a lot of people would say uh-oh here it comes or yeah. they were saying yeah. oh man I'm a big time coffee drinker here it comes <laughs> he's gonna slam me you know <laughs> so it's interesting that the whole discussion we haven't done that no no and, and, and I'm glad to hear that I'm glad that's the general takeaway although I again I hate to sound like a mealy-mouthed politician or I'm not committing but but what's the expression that the, the poison is in the dose. Is that the expression? There's a cleverer way of saying that. But, but it, there, I think there's some truth to that when it comes to caffeine and so many other things. I think caffeine can be a beneficial molecule, but I'm also very, very mindful of the fact that it's very addictive. It is the single most widely consumed addictive chemical in, on the planet. And personally, I don't like feeling addicted to things. Yeah. Now, this is, this is not intended to bring in anything beyond that simple statement. I like feeling that I'm in control of my body. I don't like feeling addicted to sugar and, and nacho tortilla chips, and I don't like feeling addicted to caffeinated sodas. And so I, 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 I try to be mindful of those behaviors and those addictions. And when I feel like I'm getting a little too demanding or I'm taking this a little too frequently, I will make an effort to deliberately push away from it for, for a week or so, or whatever I feel like it needs to be. I don't like feeling addicted. So that's that, which is a totally non-metabolic view. Right. So it's, it's me speaking outside my wheelhouse, but it's, it's me speaking as a person who enjoys diet, Dr. Pepper, for example, and, and mindful of, of how sometimes we can become a slave to these sorts of things. I don't like feeling that way. Yeah. We've had a few questions come in uh, re around this topic. Let me throw a couple of them out here. Uh, from Monica, and, and we touched on this a tiny bit, but not in much detail. Monica asks, I've heard that caffeine interferes with weight loss. Is that true? Um, uh, no, I would say it's not true. That, that Yes, uh, sure, I could say, well, yeah, you get a little bit of insulin resistance. That Those studies that confirmed insulin resistance did so in, in what's considered the gold standard, which is a hyperinsulinemic euglycemic clamp. 
where they're infusing lots of glucose, but infusing a lot more insulin to keep the glucose at a level. And they basically say, how much insulin do we have to put in to keep that glucose in check? What that shouldn't be confused with is saying, oh, I drank this and now my insulin just went up because that doesn't happen when someone drinks coffee. But what it is saying is that if you drink your coffee with sugar or your caffeine with sugar to, to throw Coke under the bus too here and others and, and Dr. Pepper and uh, then, then you might have a harder time clearing that glucose and your insulin response to that glucose will be higher. So no, I do not think caffeine would interrupt weight loss but uh, or coffee, but I would say it depends on how you're getting it because if you're getting one of these garbage, frothy, milkshakey lattes, then it's not the caffeine that's doing it. Yeah. Or it's not the coffee even that's doing it. It's everything else. It's always interesting at Starbucks or whatever, you'll see... those giant drinks. I mean, they come in a big plastic cup that's, I don't know, 24 ounces or 30 ounces. Mm -hmm. And there's a little coffee in the bottom. And then there's like 15 pumps of some kind of syrup and all that other stuff. Yeah. Yep. And all the sugary cream that this, this whipped sugary cream they add on top. Yeah. yeah it's, yeah. it's basically, you may as well get a blizzard from dairy cream. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> well, Ben, you know, we have clients that, and Carly, I'm sure does too, that when we take them off even diet soda, they seem to lose weight. Uh, I, yeah. I don't know if that is from the artificial sweeteners or from the fact that they're probably drinking more water. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your... Yeah, that's a great question. So there is consistent correlational evidence to find that people who drink diet soda even have are much more likely to get type 2 diabetes and obesity. That's all correlational, of course. Um, there are two possible explanations. I don't buy into this, the idea that the sweetener itself is going to be a problem. Aspartame does not affect insulin. And I don't mean to defend aspartame, which is the sweetener used in diet sodas. I don't mean to do that, but it does not affect insulin. And to my knowledge, doesn't affect any metabolic process whatsoever. But when you taste something sweet, it's unnatural to not have glucose come into your blood because in nature, Everything sweet comes with carbohydrate. There's no exception to this. Protein isn't sweet. Fat isn't sweet. It's only carbohydrate. And so, and and not even all carbohydrates, of course, but there's no exception. In nature, if it's sweet, it is a carbohydrate and there should be a glucose load that comes with it. So it might be uh, an urge, this, this, this drive that the brain, where we're hardwired for this, we have, we were built or evolved or both to have a glucose load rush into our blood every time we taste something sweet. And so it might be the brain's reaction where it's saying, hey, you just had something sweet. Where's the glucose load? And now it creates an almost amounting pressure. Now, I'm, this is a little bit of philosophy mingled with science here. <laughs> so I'm speculating a little bit. But, but essentially, the sweetness is coming in the body. The brain is wondering, okay, when are we getting the glucose load? When are we getting the glucose load? When are we getting the glucose load? And ultimately, while the person was avoiding sugar from the diet soda, they end up getting it in other ways because there's a mounting pressure to get it. And the best correlational studies, they're all correlational. They're so deeply flawed. They just can't account for all this kind of nuance. So what I suspect is happening is that as a person is cutting out sweet diet soda, they are cutting out this activation of sweet sensing. And as the sweet sensing is going away, so too are cravings for sweet things. So I think it's by cutting out diet soda, they are uh, cutting out um, some addictive tendencies 
that they may be engaging in without actually telling the coach, you know, or, or they, they, you know, they might not even be fully aware of how they're making up for it by snacking on something else that they wouldn't have yeah. otherwise. Awesome. Thanks. Ben. And I think, I think also to me that that feels like a cop out answer to be totally honest, to say they're just cheating and that's gotta be the case. They're just getting sugar somewhere else. But I do notice with people when you drink diet soda, your hunger in general feels a little bit more elevated and you're fighting, you're fighting to eat what's appropriate amount, you know, the amount wise. So Which I is, think that that's just what I said. You're just saying it in a prettier way. So you start to develop this hunger for this mounting pressure for glucose or you've tasted something sweet and the brain's wondering, when am I going to get what you just told me I was going to get? Now, now, maybe where I was at fault is I'm accusing the person of sneaking things in. Um, but they are going to be, if there is a growing hunger, they're going to start fighting that hunger mm-hmm. more yeah, and more. Yeah. Regardless of whether it's sweet, they're still going to be hungrier. Yes. Or could yeah. be hungrier. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Good yeah. point. Good point. Uh, question from Laura. Do you know of any evidence about the effects of caffeine on anabolic hormones, especially estrogen? Oh, uh, yeah. Interesting. What an interesting question. Yeah. So uh, estrogen isn't normally considered anabolic, but it is at certain tissues, but not those that are traditionally bragged about like muscle and bone. Um, but, but no, no, uh, I am unaware of any connection between caffeine and estrogens at all. Um, uh, but certainly caffeine is not going to promote the growth, uh, the stimulation of, of the more genuine anabolic hormones like testosterone growth hormone or, or insulin like growth factor IGF one, that would be, um, uh, that would be, uh, the, uh, the opposite. That'd be counter-regulatory in caffeine wants to break things down and cortisol helps it break things down. And so it would be, uh, physiological, mayhem to have the anabolic hormones up as well. So no, in general, I'm very comfortable saying caffeine will not induce an increase in any anabolic phenomena. Okay, good. Laura, hope that helps. Uh, Interesting comment from Carolyn. So glad you're addressing coffee. I was arguing with my friend about the fact that black coffee raises my blood sugar. It doesn't. Black coffee doesn't nope. raise your blood sugar, right? So. No, nope, as long as it's just the coffee. Now, sometimes um, I mentioned earlier these these powdered versions of of coffee and powdered versions of other teas and things. Those could have fillers like maltodextrin in mm-hmm. them to help them flow. In fact, they very very often do. So, in that sense, it's possible, but it's not because of the coffee. It'd be what else is in there as a result of that processed version of it. Yeah, but so assuming it's normal brewed stuff, then no, it won't do anything. Yeah, so your comment, Carolyn, Ben's saying if it's, in fact, brewed black coffee, you're probably right. It doesn't. Spread. And what, if, what about the temperature? I know, like, I, when I wore a CGM, a hot bath can make me have, you know, a spike in glucose. Could the temperature of the drink affect yeah. glucose? You know what, Carly? I, I would have. So, so uh, no, I don't think so. And, in fact, with those of us who wear CGMs, I was talking with someone at Levels, a company I advise, and they noted that the, inc- the huge increase, because I said, boy, when I go into the sauna, my glucose levels just skyrocket. And they said, oh, well, actually, it's because of what the heat does directly to the CGM. Um, oh, wow. And so it's when you are in the bath and you're in the hot water, 
it's actually just that it's exposed to a very high temperature and that messes the CGM up hmm. until it cools back down. So you aren't actually getting any change in your glucose levels at all. Wow. <laughs> but it does have, that does happen with cold, right? When you go out in the cold, your glucose spikes a little bit. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. Now it would depend on That's how much, real? but yes, yes, it is because okay. of, um, because of, uh, stress hormones, uh, like cortisol okay. and epinephrine. Yeah. So, yeah. So Carly, it was a very, it was a revelation to me because I was always huh. bragging about, oh man, look, I'm in the sun and look at how stressful it is. This is cool. And my glucose goes up and they said, oh, well, actually it's just because <laughs> it gets too hot. It That's overheats. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good to know. Now I've got a really interesting question, Jack. I don't know if anybody knows this, but how do we actually produce caffeine? Is it just from like the, the coffee bean or something else how do we produce Rich, the, we'll be the judge of whether your question's interesting <laughs> or not yeah i know is it is it do we, i mean the caffeine we're putting into like colas i mean where's that coming from yeah Didn't so so know? caffeine is a chemical that can be produced from scratch in a, in a oh, factory okay. and it and or it is a it is a chemical that a plant will just naturally make i don't know what the plant's purpose of caffeine is it's probably something to defend it you know, which may be anytime plant is making a chemical to defend it from getting eaten, it's usually a chemical that isn't good for us to eat. <laughs> and so that, frankly, it, caffeine is probably not healthy in the long run when ultimately when it's all said and done. Now, again, I'm not trying to deter anyone from eating it, but in general, these chemicals that plants make, many of them, not all of them, I, I actually, I, I should take that back. I don't know why the plant is making it. Um, if it is a chemical to defend itself from getting eaten, then that probably means it's not overly healthy for a human. Yeah, the, I've uh, I've wondered that question too before, uh, Rich. A related question because you talk about coffee and decaffeinated coffee. Does decaffeinated coffee regular coffee, but they didn't put the caffeine in it, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's two they, ways to they look take at it. it out. They take they it have out. Have to take it out. Yep. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, from Maria with liquid fasting, is the acidity in coffee going to cause stomach problems? Uh, yeah, um, that's a good question. So stomach, people can have uh, stomach discomfort if the food is, is acidic or even too hot. Uh, so in that sense, coffee might contribute to it. And that might result in some kind of um, GERD or, or reflux. Uh, so, so depending on that really does depend on the person uh, with factors I'm not familiar with. What will give someone heartburn or an upset stomach will be totally different. And it can change. For example, much to my dismay, I now have really bad heartburn anytime I eat peanut butter, which is just heartbreaking because I just love peanut butter. Um, and, and so, so what, whether coffee might do that to someone or not, yeah. um, it, it's probably, it might be the pH. Now, Having said that, whether there might be some GERD or, or reflux that comes from the coffee and maybe partly because of a, uh, of a changing stomach acidity, I don't know if that does happen, but nothing you eat will change the pH of your blood. I know that's a little off topic. I just have to mention it because I always see questions on social media about I'm eating a pH diet or I'm eating a, a diet that is matched to my blood pH. That is all total and utter nonsense. There's nothing true about that whatsoever. No food you eat or drink can change your blood pH. The blood defends its pH so remarkably vigorously that you would have to, despite what I just said, you would have to eat baking soda and keep it 
and not throw it up, which most people would do. If you could somehow eat half a box of baking soda and actually have it stay in your guts, that would affect your pH. Or if you could drink something like hydrochloric acid, which our stomach is already filled with, and actually have it somehow move in or you know, something which, which you couldn't do. It would rip mm-hmm. your guts apart. So you can't eat or drink anything that will change your blood pH. Anyone who says otherwise is just selling you something. Interesting. Don't try this at home. Don't folks. try this at home. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. don't try that at home. <laughs> they yeah. don't, Carly. not serious. Um, I do notice with some of my clients that especially during a longer fast, if they're drinking other things than water, they will tend to get more acid reflux or yeah, and that or that might be mm-hmm, that might be a result of when you're fasting, your mucosal lining of your stomach will start to get a little thin because you're just not digesting as much, you're not making as much acid, and then all of a sudden, if you start putting in something that would increase acid production, even if it's not a food stuff per se, a calorie, it might be that this already kind of thin mucosal lining in the stomach just gets too thin and now it hurts your stomach. That's possible. Yeah. Uh, someone on our website just chatted in, is caffeine bad for hypertension? Um, well, maybe. Um, and, and if so, it would just because it would be a result of what it does to the stress hormones where when you drink caffeine and you have an increase in epinephrine, epinephrine um, will increase blood pressure, it'll increase the contractility of the heart, the heart will beat harder, which will increase pressure, and it will induce vasoconstriction um, in the peripheral blood vessels all around the body. And so the increased beating of the heart combined with a narrower blood vessel does mean increased blood pressure. So I I would say if you do have hypertension, coffee or caffeine in general will probably not help. Right. Uh, From Eleonora, our good friend Eleonora, do you know if potassium mixed with caffeine lessens the effect on cortisol? I have no idea. Interesting question. Eleonora yeah. comes up with great questions. She's one of yeah, our, I bet she has a <laughs> justification for that question. And I, I bet there's a, this is coming from somewhere informed. I'm just not informed. Okay, okay. Um, why do you, from, from Sarah, what do you think causes headaches when you're trying to quit caffeine? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's a natural. So I don't know of the direct effect it would be having in the brain. I'd already mentioned caffeine's effects on vasoconstriction in the brain, but I suspect that is to some degree a result of any, any time you are trying to wean yourself off of an addiction, you're, uh, and again, that's an unscientific answer, uh, but expect some withdrawals. And I would yeah. say that's the that's part of the withdrawal symptoms. Yeah. <laughs> And that, I wonder if that's different for those that metabolize caffeine faster and slower. Because when I do have caffeine and I feel like I'm addicted and I get off, I don't get the headaches that people talk about. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Metabolic Classroom. This podcast is brought to you by Insulin IQ, nutrition and lifestyle coaching for insulin control and better health. Learn more at insuliniq.com. And by Health Code, the world's healthiest and most delicious meal replacement shake. Learn more at Get Health, that's G-E-T-H-L-T-H dot com. Find us on Facebook and YouTube at Insulin IQ. Hi, hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.